Welcome to Success Stories. We can't believe that we've recorded over 120 episodes already. Over the Australian summer, we'll be sharing with you some of your favourite episodes. Have a listen. We bet you'll learn something you might have missed the first time, and it'll set you up for a fantastic 2019. Respected journalist Tracy Spicer hit a raw nerve in 2014 when she literally stripped away the facade of the well-groomed TV presenter to share the realities of being a professional woman in the public eye. Her TED Talk went viral with millions of views and has sparked a broader discussion about women's expected role in society. In her new book, The Good Girl Stripped Bare, Tracy shares how she's braved numerous threats from internet trolls to continue calling out sexism in our community. She's a role model of a new approach to gender equality and is doing her part to lighten the makeup bags of women everywhere. Finance more broadly, like the media, is traditionally male-dominated. And it's wonderful to see in my lifetime so many powerful women who are now working in the advice industry. So that warms the cockles of my heart. The other thing is I still worry that we're going to see a generation of women retiring in poverty because they don't have enough superannuation. Perhaps they've been with a man who was the primary breadwinner for 30, 40 years. All of a sudden they've broken up and she's left with nothing. I hear that story. Yeah, it's happened to friends of mine over and over again. So it's really important that women get good financial advice so they can be independent in their later years. And it's not just that award process that you've been involved in. You do a lot of writing on this topic. It's something that you've it seems from my perspective, you feel comfortable talking about. I do. I was really fortunate to be brought up by a feminist mother with a sister. And mum said to both of us girls, you can do whatever you want, be whatever you want. You don't have to have children. You can be career women or you can have children and combine the two. So from childhood, I knew that there were opportunities for women. And a lot of kids don't get that opportunity, don't see the possibilities. So I like to write and broadcast about a lot of this stuff just to give other women ideas about how they can combine all of this stuff. I'm not one of those people who believes, you know, in that whole you can have it all thing because, you know, no one ever asked that of a bloke. No one ever says, do you think you can have it all, you know, kids and work? They just assume that blokes can have that. But I do think as women, because we do undertake the primary um, unpaid roles in society, that we do need to share our stories about, well, how do we manage all of this? How do we navigate through workplaces where there's structural discrimination? It seems to me that you've got to a place in your career where you are at liberty, if you like, to do a whole range of different things. My guess would be that you didn't have that freedom early on in your career. So how have you managed to progress so that you have the sort of flexibility you have now? It's such a good question. I've just written a book about all this called The Good Girl Stripped Bear. And at its heart, it's a femoir, a feminist memoir. Um, It's all about how we grow up as good girls and we want to do the right thing and we want to do what our employer expects us to do and positions of authority in society tell us to do, the way we look, the way we appear, the way we act, all of that stuff. And when I was sacked weeks after returning from maternity leave at Network 10... And that was after your first child? That was after my second child. They tried to move me aside after my first child, but I stood up for myself and got legal advice and union regulations and popped them on the desk in front of the boss and said, no, you can't do that to me. All of a sudden, I thought, 
gosh, you try to be the good girl, you try to be the right thing, and we're still treated like this in the workplace. So 10 years ago, that taught me that I needed to gain control of my own future. And really, in a way, it was the best thing that I ever did, because now I can diversify, I can work for whoever I want. I write for Fairfax, I broadcast for the ABC, I've got the freedom to spend time writing a book, um, started this thing called Women in Media to support other women in the industry. So it really is a gift to be able to diversify, to be your own boss. And I think women can be that, whether they're in a workplace or whether they've got their own business. It's all a matter of thinking about what your ethical structure is, thinking about what you're passionate about, what's important, and following that, you know, being being your own role model, you know, I think that's the key. It, it was one of those things, I think, you think about being a journalist as being glamorous. And, <laughs> and, and when you say those things about writing for Fairfax and being on the ABC, all of that sounds like it would be fabulous all the time. What's the reality actually like? The reality is that working in television is like being on a factory floor. Now, I know that people on a factory floor work longer hours for much less pay, but you are creating widgets. And the widgets that we create are television programs. It's a team effort. We work very closely together, but we often work extremely odd hours under very high pressure. And with a lot of, especially these days for women, trolling and humiliation online. So, Especially about appearance. Especially about appearance. So it seems like it's glamorous, you know, we go in there and we're treated like queens and all that stuff. It's not actually how it works. There is this expectation that women have to appear in a certain way on television and if they don't, they're absolutely torn down, they're judged on how they look. I, I can do what I think is probably the best interview I can possibly do in my using my 30 years of media experience and I'll still get emails saying, but what about your hair? Why did you wear that jacket? You know, oh, she's looking old today. She must be a bit tired. So, and it's not the kind of comments that men get. So there's still this really entrenched sexism in society, like that old quote um, from the 1970s, that men act and women appear. We're still judged as objects. You've done something about it. So you did that amazing TED Talk that went viral where you basically stripped down from what you look <laughs> like as a newsreader to being a, you know, what's underneath human being. How did that come about? I felt like a really bad role model for my daughter. She was about seven at the time. She was watching me trawl on my makeup when I was working at Sky News. She said, Mum, why do women wear makeup and men don't? And I didn't have a good answer for her. I couldn't say it's because it makes women look better because that implies we don't look good the way nature intended. I can't say it makes us feel better because that just points to pathologically low self-esteem and I don't want her to think that as he, you know, when she was burgeoning into a young woman. So I said, look, darling, it's what society expects. It's not right and it's not fair. It creates a burden on women with regards to cost, you know, hair and makeup and corporate clothing. That's, um, you know, like what Carl Stefanovic did. He can wear the same suit 365 days a year. Not a great expenditure. But if we wore the same clothes every day in our corporate jobs, can you imagine what people would say? So it's a cost borne by us in the workplace that's not borne by men. It's a time that's borne by us. Imagine what we could do if we weren't spending our time growing. And I thought, what's the best way of exemplifying this in a TED talk? I know, I'll get up there like the over-groomed newsreader. And I was in a makeup chair for three hours to make me look, you know, the way that I look on television. And is that how long it takes on a day-to-day -day basis to make newsreaders look like that? Usually it's between an hour and an hour and a half. 
I know a one woman, though, who sits in the makeup chair for five hours, and she's one of the biggest names on Australian television because she's so insecure. You know, she feels like she needs all the false eyelashes, the bronzing stuff, all of that crazy hair extensions, this kind of business. So that's why I sat in the makeup chair for three hours because I wanted to give the most exemplified version of this, the most extreme version that I could get to. And then I slowly stripped it away. I wiped off my makeup. I sprayed my hair until it was the frizzy beast on my head, took off my corporate dress and just had a little, you know, Target singlet and shorts underneath. And it was so liberating. I didn't realise that it would strike the chord that it did with so many women. Most of the women who came up to me were women who work in retail afterwards, actually. Some of the most lowest paid women in Australian society and they said a third of our wages are spent on appearing shop ready and it's just not fair. And what did you do with that afterwards? So it it did have a huge viewing um, and my sense having talked to you afterwards is it sort of took you a bit by surprise. It really did. It took me aback that it had struck such a chord with women and especially with young women. And the other interesting thing that struck me was most of the people who come up to me in the street or at functions who've seen the TED Talk and who enjoy it are Gen Y or millennial women who are very highly groomed. So these are women who come up with full faces of makeup, with the the false fingernails and the whole thing. And they say to me, because I look at them and they compliment me and I say, look, thank you for the compliment. Do you feel you know, burdened by the amount of time it takes you to look like this. And they all say to me, yes, but I can't leave the house without looking like this. I feel I feel like I don't love myself enough the way I look naturally. And that really saddens me. So that's why I wanted to do the talk to target women, particularly in that age group, before they get into a habit of a lifetime of doing this. So I'm delighted that they come and say to me, look, it's made me realise that I don't have to do this, that I, learned, I, le- I need to learn to love who I am without all of the artifice. And you seem to have found a nice balance now in terms of, I mean, you do appear on TV and you don't look, you know, crazy because you're different from everyone else. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a, a presentation that, that, that's appropriate, but it seems like you've really paired it back in your real life. It wasn't just a one-off stunt. Yeah, definitely. I usually don't wear makeup or, you know, get my hair done when I go out for meetings or anything that's to do with work that's not on television. And when I am on television, I understand, particularly because I host news and current affairs shows these days, I want people focusing on what we're discussing on the panel and not saying, oh my gosh, is that a three inch hair poking out of her chin? So I do understand that there is a level that you have to be at. And I always say to the hair and makeup artists, it's good being at the ABC because there's not that huge expectation of the commercials to look like a super model. I always say to them, just give me the most natural makeup that you can get away with on television, the most natural hair. So I'm still being, you know, a reasonable role model. I'm not trying to look like a Barbie doll. The other thing I'm doing is growing out my grey, which is incredibly liberating because you just don't see a lot of grey-haired men on television, but you don't see grey-haired women. In terms of your career, did it just evolve organically or have you been one of these people that had some real goals in mind that you've progressively focused on achieving? I always wanted to be a journalist from when I wrote for the school newspaper at the age of 12, that Dag Yell story, and saw Yarn Event on television, who I thought was wonderful. So role modelling was really important in that respect. But then it developed organically. I did a journalism degree and it took me six months to get my first job as a cadet because it happened at the time of the Black October stock market crash in 1987 and there just weren't any jobs around. So I learnt humility really early, you know, working in a whole bunch of different jobs, selling shoes, teaching Indigenous kids maths, you know, to make ends meet while I was trying to get my first job. And then I never had a five-year plan or even a one-year plan 
But as a young person in the media, you've got to go to a whole bunch of different organisations to get experience. So I worked in radio in Brisbane, radio in Melbourne, and again, just sent out CVs going, will you take me? A country television for a year, television, Channel 9 in Melbourne, then Channel 10 in Melbourne, then Channel 10 in Brisbane. So it just kind of evolved organically for those 15 years after that. Is this your experience too, that sometimes A, doing the lower profile stories, but B, making some mistakes along the way are actually what give you the confidence to achieve more and have higher profile roles down the track? That's so wise. When I was young, I swore on country television very badly and I fainted twice on Channel 10 in Melbourne in front of a quarter of a million people. And I'm glad that happened at that point in my career because I learned to never swear really badly around How on earth did you find yourself swearing? Did you think you were off Yes, camera? I was telling a joke to the weather presenter you know, because you see the same stories over and over again, you get a bit bored. And, you know, there was a story on about football. I'm not really interested in football. So I was telling her a joke and our microphones were supposed to be off. And the punchline of the joke had the F word in it. And the audio director got her sleeve caught in the fader, the audio fader. And my microphone went up just as I said the F word, which is horrifying. Oh, but that's just such a fantastically funny story. Though. <laughs> it's fabulous. But it's the best thing that ever happened because, you know, I know people who have sworn on microphones when they're very established and it's wrecked their careers. So I'm glad that I learned that kind of stuff very young. And with the fainting, I learned how to manage anxiety, which is what it was. I had two panic attacks and now I can breathe through anything no matter how nervous I am. In terms of wellness, as you say, you work some funny hours, you get probably unrealistic deadlines that you have to meet from time to time. How do you stay centred, stay productive, stay well with the sort of roles you have? I have the great privilege of being able to teach presentation training at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And as part of that, I developed a syllabus about four years ago where I wrote down all of the stuff that helped keep me calm. And it's a good reminder, not only to teach younger people or people coming into the industry, but it's a good reminder for me. And the key to it is breathing. Even before I do, you know, I fill in hosting the drum and I'm not terribly nervous about that. I've been doing it for a while now. I'll always go into the bathroom or somewhere private. I'll do some really deep diaphragmatic breaths and then I'll do the Amy Cuddy power pose, if you've ever seen the um, so Amy Cuddy's TED Talk. So explain that because I love that. It's, it's such fabulous. a good idea. But just give us a little bit of an explanation of it. Yeah, well, she's looked at the neuropsychological effect in our body when we're nervous and when we're underconfident. She's found that if we stand with our arms sort of like in a V above our heads or our hands on hips like the Wonder Woman pose for two minutes, it decreases the cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and increases the testosterone, which is particularly good for women in our bodies to increase our confidence. So I do the breathing to relax, then I do the power pose to build my confidence because sometimes when you do that deep diaphragmatic breathing, you can get a little bit sleepy. And I think if you, you know, obviously eat well and sleep well, that's obvious. But if you breathe deeply, that gets past that immediate fight or flight response. Do you do other things at home beyond immediately before performing? Are there things that you've integrated into your life that you would recommend to other people? Oh, yeah. I exercise every day. And 
either for half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour, depending upon what I'm doing. And I mix it up every day and I just do stuff that I want to do. You know, if I don't feel like going to the gym, I won't go to the gym. I'll go out and have a swim instead, or I'll go for a paddleboard, or I'll go for a walk, or I'll go for a bike ride. I just get up in the morning and I think, what does my body feel like it wants to do today? And I'll mix it up. And just anything do, anything that you do outside, I think, is tremendous psychologically. So if I'm working, and often if I do the drum, I've got to be across all the news and current affairs. So I'll uh, get my little earbuds and I'll listen to AM in the morning and Fran Kelly on the ABC. So while I'm walking, I'm also researching as well. I really admired a series of articles that you did around the time that Julia Gillard was having a hard time as a politician. How have you found that that courage has developed over time? Thank you for the compliment. Um, I think a couple of things. Um, Mum and Dad brought us up to be... um, social justice warriors in a way, to stand up for what we believe in. Dad would always watch the telly news, you know, the house would go quiet at six o'clock every night. It was that kind of household. And he'd say if the government was giving someone a hard time or business was giving someone a hard time, that's not fair. He always sided with the underdog. So I guess my sister and I have this real social justice thing from when we were kids. With regards to having the courage, I don't I don't know whether it's necessarily courageous But I also think what's the worst thing that can happen? I mean, my mum died when I was about 31 and ever since I lost mum and I almost lost a child, so my first uh, child, Taj, was born very prematurely and fought for his life for two weeks in neonatal intensive care. After those two things happened, I thought, God, what's the worst thing that can happen for me? If I speak out, you know, no one's going to die. I'm just expressing an opinion. What's the worst thing that can happen? And have you had some criticism that's upset you? Only once. Uh, there's a lot of trolling online of, you know, female journalists are the worst affected with trolling online internationally. Uh, the second worst are male politicians. So we're even worse than politicians when it comes to trolling because it's that whole history of silencing women. An opinionated woman is a very terrifying thing and it's all to do with objectification of women. There's a whole rich feminist history around it. And I got some very bad trolling about two and a half years ago where the men's rights groups in America got onto some of my articles and threatened to rape and kill me and my children. And they knew where the kids went to school and they knew where I lived. So it was absolutely terrifying. And I actually did ease off on writing spiky articles for a while after that because I thought, what's the most important thing? The health and safety of my family. I'm starting to write some more pointed articles now, but it really knocked me about for a couple of years. And was it something that you took to the police or you just... I did. Fortunately, I had a a close personal friend who was very high up in the New South Wales police and I just called him off the record and said, look, what can I do? He gave me good advice. He said, look, we're still workshopping charges around this. You know what I mean? So the police were still catching up at that point in time with new media. He said, you can certainly report it to your local police station, but he said, I just don't think that we've got the capacity to do anything about it, number one. And number two, do you want the retribution that could come from that? And that made me realise, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I'm delighted to say that through Women in Media, we've been working with the New South Wales Police. They've got some fabulous uh, detectives in there now who've done masters on new media and they've got a whole suite of strategies now. So things are much better and we're going into media organisations to help other women who are being targeted like this. As your career has developed, have there been particular resources that you found really useful, books, courses, things that you could point to and say that has been pivotal to me or that's something that I think more people would benefit from if they engaged with it? 
I've been reading a lot of memoirs in the last couple of years just because I've written my own and it's not something I've ever read before. And there are some wonderful, wonderful uh, women writers, some of whom are comedians, because sometimes I think it's the best way to get a message across, uh, some of whom come from different backgrounds, not necessarily journalists. So any journalism. That in particular that you would name? Yes. Read all of the Caitlin Moran books. She is a genius. She's a columnist and comedian from the UK and she puts really complex ideas in a humorous way and makes you realise she's got this great thing about sexism. She goes, because she, she speaks in a really bogan tone of voice and she says, I always know when some sexism is happening but if I put a man in that position. So would that happen to a man? Would that be asked of a man? Would men think about this? What are the men thinking? And it's a really cool way of just flipping things on its head. She's made me think about things in an entirely different way. And she, was it her book, How to Be a Woman? Yeah, How to Be a Girl, How to Be a Woman. Moranthology is her latest one. Looking to the future for you, what are the things that you're really excited about? Oh, excited about seeing the kids grow up and become teenagers. They come out with the funniest things and the most wonderful things. They teach me stuff every day. You know, they'll pick up instances of unfairness and inequality that I don't see because they're of that generation where diversity is normal, right? You know, they're not the sort of pale male and stale model that we're accustomed to be. Well, and they've got a mother like you, well, parents (laughs) like you who share responsibilities and so... The world outside sometimes looks a bit different, presumably, from your home. That is so true and they see things really acutely and I have to remind them, look, our circumstance is what we choose but it's not what everyone does and don't judge what everyone does but it's good to see the comparison. And I also look forward to further diversifying my career and doing a bit more writing after I finish this book. Uh, I want to do a book on the fourth wave of feminism and get a whole bunch of writers from India and Africa and all over the world because, you know, women's rights means different things to different people in different countries and I think we can learn from each other. Well, it's wonderful to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing and to Broke Free who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.